Hi, my name is Charlie. I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank your committee for inviting me to your conference. It's um, a pleasure and an honor to be asked to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous, although it's a pain in the ass. For those of you who are new, you will find that out. Um, being sober is a pain in the ass. Um, however, uh, you usually find out how spiritually well off you are by how willing you are to be inconvenienced by sobriety. So um, it's great. You know, um, I got, I left Los Angeles this morning at, I got to the airport at 6.30, sun was coming up, wasn't a cloud in the sky, it was going to be 72 today, the wind had just blown through all last week, so we had crystal clear view of everything, then I ran in Chicago, it was snowing, I felt alienated on the flight that I was on because it was apparently you weren't allowed to be on the flight unless you had a badly mannered child with you. Um, <laughs> we were promised the flight was going to take off at 2.30. It didn't get out of the, off the ground until almost 5, which is always... Uh, and I hate when they, when they say we're de-icing. That really has a bad... That's a bad buzzword for... <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's just alcoholics. You hear you hear de-icing and you hear wind shear and all that stuff, and it just makes me uh, a little a little uh, skitzy. And um, anyway, I got here nice and late, and um, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to, I'm glad to be anywhere on the ground right now. I got to tell you that um, I hate flying. It's it's um, I have long legs, and that's always a problem. And I'm, I'm just, it's really a bitch session. Just relax for a second. I've got to get my bearings here. Um, I, I, um, I am inclined to look for the worst in things, even though, I, even though I believe I'm on the road to finding the best. You know that? Uh, you just, you, you really want things to work out really well, and yet somewhere along the road, everything starts to, to suck. And so you decide to just stop for the night and stay there, you know? Um, if you're new, you'll find out that even sobriety, you know, and drinking life sucks sometimes, and, and sober life sucks too, but it's a much higher quality of suck, i got to tell you. <laughs> it's, um, it's way better than it was before, and um, I am, I'm normally just a, a peevish uh, a little dork, but pretty much. I am... Um, <laughs> I have a kind of mindset, I got up, and it was in January, and I, got, I, I live a block from where I work in Los Angeles, which is unheard of, and I have, I have, my, I have health, good health. I've been sober for 15 years and 10 months today. I've been um, employed gainfully during my sobriety. My, I, I published my first two books last year, which are, it's astonishing considering that, you know, I was a receiving clerk for 20 years uh, on the road to being famous. And um, <laughs> I'm loved. I'm in a solid Alcoholics Anonymous group. I'm active in AA. I care about people, which is an unusual circumstance, and people care about me. And I'm walking to work in the morning, and I'm realizing all that. The sun's coming up. It's nice and crisp. Night, one of those mornings like this morning. Uh, and everything was just perfect. And I thought to myself, what the hell's the use? You know, I get those little turns of, of spirit that happen at the most inopportune times. And I've always been that way. And it doesn't matter if I'm sober or drunk. I'm always going to be that way. What matters is that sober, I have something to do about it. Now, I've, I've felt that way ever since I can remember. I've always uh, have been, I'm precocious. I, I was, uh, I graduated from high school when I was 17, went right into college and graduated college at, at 30. And uh, I had, had a, several detours along the way, but I, I made it anyway. And I, um, I was um, an only child full of potential. I don't know if there's anyone else here who, who suffers from the burden of potential, but uh, I'm still in possession of most of my potential right now as, as I stand here. And um, I just never knew what to do with it. And I get called into principal's offices and counselor's offices in high school and priest's offices, which is really gives you the willies. And uh, um, anybody in authority, my parents would be called, summoned to them and they would sit down, it would be the same kind of thing. Uh, Charles has potential, we just don't understand why he doesn't do anything with it. 
And my response was always the same. I always uh, said, you know, since I know I've got it, and now my parents know I've got it, thanks a bundle, and you know I've got it, why don't you just back the hell off? I'll use my potential when I'm damn good and ready to use it, you know? I'm just not ready to use it just because you said so. Uh, and when I do use it, I suggest you put sunglasses on because I'm going to light you up uh, when I do use it. But for now, why don't you just go smear your insipid concern on somebody else's kid? Because, you know, if you were such hot shit anyway, you wouldn't be a high school counselor now, would you? Uh, it, never, uh, it never rolled out quite so well. I always said something like, I'll try harder. But, uh, I, I wanted to say that. I've always been one of those people who's inclined to be a rebel but never tell anybody about it, you know, which sort of it gives you a lot of torque and let, gets you going. And um, I've, I suffered from absolutely no overachievement problems at all. And uh, I didn't like, I never thought of drinking. I was just a depressed, cynical, restless, irritable, discontented 17-year-old uh, and it seemed like I was 17 for about nine years. Uh, and I, I went to a party one time. I, I had gotten into the music industry as a, a clerk in a record store. And I was working there when um, I was asked by these guys um, who used to be the, sort of the hoodlums of my high school came in one day and they invited me to come to a party. And I went, which was an odd circumstance for me because I, uh, there were people at the party, which was I don't like people, basically. One-on-one uh, uh, -on -one is fine. Where two or more are gathered, <laughs> sorry. Um, I just have never liked the human race. I've been an only child. I've been, I'm selfish is probably the basic reason. But uh, um, they invited me to this party, and I went. And um, someone handed me a can of malt liquor. I'd never had... I'd had sips of my father's beer. There was no alcoholism in my family, uh, in my immediate family. There's alcoholism, certainly. If you check the genealogy, I'm sure I'd find it. But it's never been that interesting to me. But my parents weren't alcoholic, and, and I never saw people misbehaving uh, with alcohol except my, my peers. And someone gave me that can of malt liquor, and it just never occurred to me to drink it um, until that night. And I looked at it, and I thought, well, I'm with all these other guys and these other people. I'll try it. And I drank about half of it down within a few minutes, and something happened that I realized now doesn't happen to people who are non-alcoholic, and that is that I had a real profound change occur inside of me where I looked at the people around me and all of a sudden everybody looked better than they looked about 20 minutes earlier. They looked interesting. They looked like they were worthy of my concern. They, the, the room seemed to light up. I felt I could feel the Irish coming up out of me, you know, that feeling where you just start to feel like you're getting loose and it's coming to your fingertips and yes, oh, this is great. And, and the world just took on a whole different tint. It just felt, I felt so relieved of the person that I had been not 20 minutes earlier. I felt like somebody had allowed me to just unzip my Charlie suit and step out and be a real man for a change. And, and I could, you know, I was, I was soigné and cool and, and Aero Flynn-like, which I could never pull off in my normal state. Um, and I, I tried to pull it off. It always came off looking like Sherman in the Mr. Peabody cartoons. But I, um, I, I just felt so alive when I drank. I don't know where that came from. I know people who drink for years, and, and, and you know, we read about them in the book and hear about them in AA where you drink for years and you slide into uh, across the invisible line, and that, that happens to a lot of us. And, that, and then there are people like me who were alcoholic. I probably was alcoholic before I took my first drink, but I, you know, I guess you can't be an alcoholic unless you drink. And uh, when I started drinking, I felt like I wanted to run outside of that party and just yodel. You know, I felt so damn good. I couldn't believe how good I felt on a can of malt liquor. And actually, I, I had several more because I had been, I don't know any other way to describe it except to say that I was there. You know, I was right in the moment, just right there. I'd never been there before. When I'm sober, I'm always thinking about where I ought to be or where I should have been or why I don't belong where I am. And all these other different things are going on in my head because of my own self-obsession. And I drank and it allowed me to be relieved of that and I was right, I couldn't believe it, I was right there with you. You know, right there. And if you knew, you've been there recently, probably. And 
when we speak of there, I can spot some of the newcomers in the room because they get a little glimmer. They, they remember really well. And you may think that, that over a period of time, people like us, you know, anybody with over five years of sobriety probably has forgotten what that's like anyway. Oh, we never forget. We never forget what that's like. And um, I drank the rest of the night. I, I got drunk. I went into a blackout. I came out of a blackout running alongside of my best friend's car. He was driving. I was holding onto the door handle and I was throwing up and running alongside the car and laughing my ass off, you know? I had, because I had been to the mountaintop. I mean, I was, I had been liberated from being me. And now I could go on to be the real me, you know? I was full of hope. It just, there's nothing like it. And when it works like that, you're probably going to die. That's what pissed me off. I, I couldn't figure that out when I got to AA. When I said, you know, when I started drinking, it made me feel great. What could be wrong with that? And you, and you hear people who come into AA and they go, gee, when I drank, I, I always felt relieved. And, and we light up when we hear that. Yeah, well, you belong here. But when, I'm, when I feel that way, I don't have a problem. And I think that's the great cheat of alcoholism. I taught high school sober. And uh, I w- we had to do um, little units on alcohol awareness as sort of a public service thing every year. And I mean, I don't know what to tell teenagers about alcoholism. You'd think that if you've been in AA a while, you'd have something to really share with them. I really, you can't tell somebody who it may be working for that they've got a problem with it because I couldn't hear that. You could have told, if if anybody had seen me drink that night, and if I was able to describe the way I felt when I drank to somebody who had been sober for some time, it would have been very clear that I had a problem with alcohol the first night I drank. Not because of doing anything foolish, but because it made me feel completely different about the way I saw the world. And I would rather, you know, I, I know it for a fact that I would drink um, tonight if I thought it worked. Because it's crazy. You know, and alcoholism is a, is a form of insanity, I guess. It sounds very dramatic when you say it from the podium. Well, we're insane. You know, but it's not that bad, uh, really. Insanity... Um, <laughs> You get used to it, you know, you can, uh, people think that insanity is something like being thrown into a big pool of cold water, you know, it's not. We just ease into it. It's just nice and warm. Insanity for me is a good place to be. I, I, because when I'm insane, I don't feel insane. I feel alive when I'm insane. I feel like I'm the, when I'm insane, I feel like the most sane person in the room. I feel like I'm, I'm the one who's connected. You are all weirdos and, uh. But when I drink, I feel like, well, I've been too harsh, you know, and, and I, I love drinking. And I had a, um, I have a tedious drunkalog, the most boring drunkalog in Alcoholics Anonymous, probably. Um, I didn't do anything very dramatic. Um, I'm one of those alcoholics who believes that the fastest way to get down a flight of stairs is to just relax. Uh, I am a, um, I, fell, I fall down, I split my head, I bleed, I wake up in my mother's nightgown, I, um, and I don't do any, you know, I don't go out at the beginning of the evening with that intention. It just happens. Um, I can't, you know, we all have our, our cute little stories. I break into people's apartments, um, not to steal anything, just to help them unlock the door. Uh, I remember being on my apartment, one, on the roof of my apartment one night. It was a, a multi-tiered apartment on, it was in Santa Monica, and it's on a hill, and and this woman had locked her keys out of her apartment, so I'd been drinking all afternoon. I thought, well, who better to go try to get in there and do a cat burglary to get her, her door open for her and be you know, her rescuer than I. And I went up to the top of the apartment and started walking across two-by-fours, like one of the Walendas, you know, coming down um, to get onto her patio. And I got to her patio, and I was going to just leap down onto the patio, but it's about seven feet, and I thought, that's too far. So I lay down on my stomach and started pushing myself off of the roof little by little so I could sort of catch the edge of the roof and then hang down and drop. Well, I caught my belt buckle in the rain gutter and uh, hung suspended by my belt buckle for about, it must have been, it couldn't have been more than about three seconds, but then I took out about 20 feet of rain gutter around the side of the building as I, as I hit the ground. But I opened the door for her and everything was all right, you know. Um, I, um, I'm the type of guy who has two and a half year relationships with you, not, not really because I want to be involved with you, but because it's just my way of saying I'm sorry for having just used you for sex. So, um, 
rather than just say I just used you for sex and have you be hurt for one night and go away, I will carry it out for the next two and a half years trying to construct something that's not working uh, until we both just absolutely loathe each other and then, <laughs> then we'll just call it a day, you know. Um, because I would rather drink, quite frankly, than to be in a relationship. If I could have it both, um, I'd just rather drink, basically. I don't know. I'm, who are we kidding? <laughs> you know? I mean, I get there, and, and that's all I need. I, I, I always wanted to be in a relationship. I'd always uh, I'd get dressed. I'd get home from work. I was a receiving clerk. I was getting my, my chops to get into the publishing industry, so I started working at a bookstore as a receiving clerk. And uh, I'd get off work at 4 o'clock, and I'd go home in my, my T-shirt and jeans and work boots, and I'd get changed into my writer's costume because I'm going to be a writer, right? Because that's, you know, you, you picked your occupation, I picked mine. Uh, there are a lot of people in here who are astronauts and, uh, you know, musicians. I can, I can see bikers and stuff uh, who never had bikes, incidentally. And I was a writer who never really wrote much. But um, a lot of jazz musicians in here, too, who can't play a note. But we all pulled it off because all it takes is attitude. You know, it's more attitude than anything. And I, and I felt safe as a writer because I was not stupid enough to go in and say, yeah, I'm a musician. Because somebody might come in with a guitar. Now I'm screwed. You know, they go, well, really? Play this. So I figured, you know, if I said I was a writer, nobody would ever come in with a piece of paper and a pen and say, really? Would you write something for me? I, it never happened. And the people I drank with were not keen on writing. It was a humdinger in Anaheim. And um, which, for those of you who haven't been there, is a city that can't be underestimated. Uh, that's their motto. Anyway, um, forget why well, I'm just wandering. Anyway, I, um, I get home and get into my writer's costume, which was a tweed jacket that I'd gotten at the St. Martin's thrift store and an Oxford shirt, lots of corduroy, pants pulled up to here. You know, I have to pull down my fly to blow my nose, but I got them all tugged up and uh, I get on my, my hush puppies, you know, and I'd wander down to this place called the Ore House in Santa Monica and uh, go in there and I'd have a notebook and I'd sit down, and I, and I had, you got to believe this, I had every intention of writing something. But my primary goal was to find her. And I don't mean just any old her, I mean her, the capital H, her. If you're alcoholic, you understand who she is. We, we know, we speak in pronouns in AA. You know, if we had her, that would make it, that would be it, you know? <laughs> That's, that's what I'm looking for, is to find the it that'll make me complete. So I go down there to find her. I get in there with my notebook. I get the notebook open. I'm waiting for some flight attendant to come sauntering in so I could kind of line her up across the room and then look, look kind of distant and hurt, you know, because that just it drives the girls crazy. And, um, and I'd stand there doing that, and I'd, I'd get a couple of drinks in me just to kind of, you know, cut the phlegm. And... Uh, <laughs> I get a couple of shots of Jack Daniels in me, which is my favorite drink, besides gin, vodka, and uh, a few other things. But um, I get a couple of drinks in me, and I get there, you know. And once you get there, who the hell needs her? It's, and it's the weirdest thing because I think that drives that drives people to Al-Anon, from what I understand. But I, when I, I may have, I may be out trolling for Mrs. Carney. And then I get a couple of drinks in me and I just don't care anymore. I am, I've got exactly what I need when I drink. And people would say, you have an alcohol problem. And I say, no, you're wrong. I'm, I'm just doing what I need to do. It's not a problem. It makes me feel too good. And then I started having consequences and started getting sick and started getting physically, um, the kind of things that happened to us, uh, um, just the physical problems and going to the hospital and not to stay. So I could answer that one of the 20 questions, no. Uh, have you ever been hospitalized? Well, no, I was never admitted. I was taken to the emergency room about half a dozen times for stomach problems, but never, you know, I was peeing a little blood, but not, I wasn't hospitalized for alcoholism. It always seemed to happen after a drunk, um, but I, and have you ever been arrested? You know, well, no, I haven't been arrested. You have to go somewhere to get arrested, really, uh, at least somewhere in the car. And I was always really careful to travel side streets, and, uh, and every time I did get pulled over, I could smooth talk my way out of it. You know, just be very cordial and very dorkish. And I, that was back in the days when they weren't as, as harsh on uh, alcoholics driving as they are now. Uh, and you could talk your way out of anything, pretty much. And uh, some of us could. 
Uh, um, and I wasn't that smooth. It was just luck, basically. But we all wind up at, at the bottom. And I had been married, and I had, I had done shameful things in my marriage. I had done shameful things in my life. I had separated myself through my drinking from anything and anybody that meant anything to me. Any goals I had had for the long range were pushed to one side. Anything that I wanted to do with my life. I remember um, my ex-wife, while we were still married, uh, she's not an alcoholic, a lovely person, and we are friends today. That's a direct benefit of this program. Uh, but she would, she tried to get me to do something, you know, which is odd. A tow truck couldn't get me to do something. I was just kind of lacquered to the apartment. And she said, why don't you go back to school, you know, and, and get and learn how to write and you know, go to school and get your degree. So she helped finance my going back to school, and I, I wound up taking, getting a, a degree in journalism and, and uh, having some small success at that. And the minute I got that degree in my hand, I threw it in the drawer and went back to the receiving dock. You know? I was only going to be there for it was a stepping stone job to my next venture, and I was there for 12 years before I left, and I couldn't get off the back dock. You know, I couldn't get out of the... I just would insulate myself and start pulling the borders in more and more, pulling the walls in around me. And I, I believe, I, get, I would get, sm- I could see it, you know, when I took an inventory, I could see exactly what was happening in my life. I kept getting smaller apartments. You know that phenomenon. So you have more money to drink with, but you just keep getting smaller apartments. And alcoholics, we do time really well, I believe. I, I, a lot of convicts in AA who do time really well as alcoholics because when I have a smaller space to deal with, I like apartments where I can put my hands on all four walls in the middle of the room, you know, because I feel like I have finally some control over my environment in there. Big apartments throw me off. You know, I, I, there's a room around the corner. I can't see it. I can't, I'm, I've lost control. I, like, I used to sit in my closet when I was a kid because I felt in control sitting in the closet. And um, so I, I just felt comfortable with smaller and smaller spaces. And I felt comfortable with fewer and fewer friends. And then I started to get that quirkiness and that, that kind of raging insanity where I started to see everyone else as the enemy and everyone else as the fault and everyone else as wrong and everybody else's success hurt me and everybody else's joy made me jealous and angry and everybody was a threat. And I, I don't know about you, but I have, the, I have the gift of hearing the implied content of anything people say to me. And uh, you know that sense where people say, Hi, how are you? And immediately you know they're, they're drilling you for something. You, you know it. You can hear it. And I got more and more paranoid. I started saving food for Armageddon in my apartment uh, or my house. I was living in my mother's house at the time. Uh, she had married and remarried and moved out after my father died. Um, and I'd cut my mother out of my life, you know, and, and had not had any kind of a relationship with her. Except to borrow her nightie every so often after I'd broken into her house. But um, it was just cold that night. And... Um, there's nothing overly dramatic about it. There's nothing dramatic about it. Most alcoholics don't have dramatic stories. Most of us just die alone, angry. I read about a guy in the valley a couple of days ago, drunk, hit a fire hydrant, knocked the plug off of it. His car, he fell on the floor of the car, and the car started to fill up with water because it had taken the roof off the car. And uh, he almost drowned, except a guy, another guy came by and pulled him out of the car, but he was drowning in his own car, drunk. That's not alcoholism. That's death by auto accident, as far as we know it. But that's how people like me die. Nothing grand, nothing, no shootout with the cops, you know, no, no James Cagney, top of the world mom, blowing myself up in a, in a fireball. I would wind up just dying somewhere, somewhere quiet, alone, uh, probably get found about eight months later. Uh, by, by someone's pets. Um, <laughs> that's, it's just a pathetic life. And my wife had left. She couldn't take it anymore. She couldn't take my abuse. And I was not physically hurting her. But there are a whole lot of ways you can hurt a woman without ever laying a glove on them. And I knew how to do that. I could get in there. I've got a tongue like a hedge clipper. I can get in there and just, uh, you know, just cut her up and, and feel shame while I'm doing it because... I don't mean to do this, but it's the only way I can do. The only way I can make you get the hell away from me, you know. Just if you could just leave me alone. And and you know, alcoholics are we're, we're full of contradictions. Uh, I have a friend named I, Eileen W. in the pro, in the program. She's sober about 20 years, and she said she came to AA screaming, "Help me!" 
you know, and that's how we are. Help! Get the hell away from me, even help! I'm drowning! They're, they're throwing life preservers left and right, and we're going, that's not it! Help! More, more life preservers, you know? And I, and that's, that's nuts, and that's how I, I am, you know? I, I needed help, but I didn't want it from you. I was lonely, but the last thing I want to do is be around people, you know? That feeling? I just feel desperately lonely, but I can't stand the thought of being in a room full of people. What, what the hell do you do? You drink. And I couldn't get drunk anymore. I, I reached a point, I was at a meditation retreat because I'd been in therapy for a couple of years. It was, I was having mixed success. And uh, I was at a meditation retreat on the 11th of June of 1981 and I wanted to kill myself, which is certainly counter to what they were, the goal of the retreat was, I think. And uh, it, was one of, it was one of those things that's entitled, you know, a journey into your life. And, and I, I couldn't find a life to journey into, to tell you the truth. I... Um, we had a guided meditation. The, the upshot of that at the end of it was, um, where do you see yourself in five years from now? Look into the future and see where you are in five years. And all I could see was myself hanging from my bathroom door. That was a visual I got. was me with my bathrobe around my neck, uh, my bathrobe belt around my neck, hanging from the back of the bathroom door. That's the visual I got. It certainly grounds for a refund if you're going to a meditation thing, but... Uh, <laughs> It was, you know, we laugh now, and we laugh at appalling stuff, but I'll tell you at that time, I never felt so much despair, ever. That was the best I could come up with in five years, what I'm going to be. I'm going to be dead. I don't know how, but I'll probably kill myself. Maybe I should do it today. That's what occurred to me then, is that maybe this is telling me to do this today. And I went out on the grounds of this meditation retreat because they'd said the, uh, <laughs> they said something that alcoholics love to hear. Um, she said, now after the meditation thing was all right. I hadn't had a drink in a day, mind you, so I'm already a little fast. And she said, now I want you to go out on the grounds and think about your life for the next five hours. <laughs> I've got a better idea. Why don't I just put my face right down by the grill of your car and you floor it? You know, um, <laughs> and I... I went out there and I was blinking nuts. I sat out at this med- out in the grounds of this meditation place in Montecito, California, and I sat there and I thought I I I should kill myself because I want to die, but I can't do it. I can't do it. Now what? And then it occurred to me the topper the the icing on this one was, you know what? You're going to feel this way every day for the rest of your life. For the next 40 years you're going to feel this way. And I thought, I don't know what to do. I didn't pray. I didn't ask God for God's help. But I think that's just exactly the moment where I dropped all of my concern about anything at all. And when I dropped all my concern about everything, I believe I left myself wide open for a power that's greater than I am, the power that I believe created me, to slip himself in there for a moment and say, and this is what I experienced at that time, and it sounds goofy, but it's true, I felt at that moment that I felt inside someone say, you are all the things that you're afraid of, but I love you anyway. And I thought, where did that come from? And I felt completely loved for, for about 10 seconds. I felt completely, absolutely, fully satisfied love inside for about 10 seconds, and it went away. And it jolted me to, as profoundly as I've ever been moved in my life over anything, even more profoundly than the alcohol had made me feel when I first had that can of malt liquor 12 years earlier. And, um, but I didn't know what to do with that feeling. And I went home the next day from this meditation retreat. Now I'm sobering up. Now I'm getting the twitches. Now I'm hearing people in my car going, Charlie. Um, I was, didn't have major, you know, seizures or anything, but I had the, little things where you hear things that aren't going on. You hear radios playing that aren't on. Um, I started to get those peripheral uh, gnats that kind of just appear <laughs> until you look at them and they're gone. And you go back to talking to somebody and they're there, you know. And uh, It's exhausting. And it was hot. It was summertime and, and it was hot. And I didn't drink that night. I went home and I bought some popsicles at the store and I started eating popsicles and, you know, boxes of them. I mean, I bought about six boxes of these damn things and I sat on my front porch and watch the sprinkler <laughs> go around. He said, 
sitting on my front porch eating popsicles and brushing away those gnats. And every, about every half hour, I'd go in and barf up this melted rainbow and come back out and <laughs> sit on the porch and, and cry and shake. And, uh, I'd, and then I'd go to work the next day and people say, how was your weekend? Fine. <laughs> no problem. Why were you late this morning? Well, you can't tell them. I had to pull my car over because a seagull flew by. <laughs> I see, I was driving to work and a seagull flew by my car and I looked at it and I just burst into tears. I could not stop sobbing. I had to pull the car over the side of the road and sit there and I mean those shoulder-racking, gasping tears. I could not stop. I could, well, I'm sitting in the car going, what in the hell is the matter with me? What is going on here? What the hell is this? And uh, Turn the dance and the radio's not working, but I'm hearing Steely Dan, you know, and uh, now I get to work, and how are you? I'm fine. <laughs> Why are you late? Well, a seagull flew by my car to stop and cry. Oh, no problem. Um, I, I was having a little, a little problem then, and um, I started, I, I'd been shopping for guns on my uh, lunch break. Um, I got it. I, it was it was nuts. Um, about four days into this, um, a woman named Debbie, who had been my my ex-wife's sister-in-law. Now my bro- my brother-in-law Bob, my wife's my ex-wife's brother. Um, I used to drink with Bob when my wife and I first started going out, and Bob was a great guy, a lot of fun. We'd drink together. I'd bring him. We'd he'd come over to our apartment, and I'd drink and. My ex-wife, Lisa, would take me in the other room and say, stop giving Bob drinks. Bob is an alcoholic. And I said, Bob is no more alcoholic than I am. (laughs) You are a nag. And I'd go out and Bob and I would drink for the rest of the night. And uh, I remember because we only drank together about three times, but after that last time, which was that time then, um, a week later, Bob was dead. He drowned. He was 25 years old one of the handsomest human beings I'd ever met in my life, and and strong swimmer, and he was up with some friends at a lake in California, and he drowned in the middle of the afternoon. And everyone was surprised, and everyone was shocked at what happened to Bob. And Bob's widow, um, about 10 years later, wound up uh, going to a detox. And she got out of the detox. I called her to tell her that I had stopped drinking, and she asked me if I would like to come to a meeting with her. And she was 22 days sober. And she 12-stepped me. And um, something you find out in Alcoholics Anonymous, that everybody has their role here. And it doesn't matter if you're 10 years old and you're in AA, you need to get sober, you're welcome here. There's nobody too young in Alcoholics Anonymous. If anybody tells you that, tell them they're crazy. Don't even talk to them. Talk to somebody else. There's nobody too old for AA either. And there's nobody too uh, different for Alcoholics Anonymous at all. And Debbie... um, had 22 days and she had something that I needed to hear at that point and she provided the message for me and she brought me to my first AA meeting and um, I didn't want to be there I took a look around the room and thought loserama this is uh, (laughs) oh man I've at least got the ember of potential going for me Uh, this crowd obviously burned out a long time ago and uh, it was a Sunday night Tustin group in Orange County and I went in there and and people were nice to me and uh, I was looking pretty cool. Uh, I got dressed up for the meeting. I was in my deerstalker hat. I had shoulder-length hair at the time and mustache, and uh, I was wearing my tweed jacket with a wool sweater vest and white cotton shirt buttoned to the neck, belly hanging over my dirty jeans and my boots on and sunglasses on in the back of the room, standing there looking sharp. And, this, uh, and getting irked when people would walk up and say, are you new? <laughs> my reaction was, you know, but um, I, I never did that, of course. I, I never, I don't do that. I mean, I, I, people don't like you if you do that to them. They really, uh, it really sets them off on the wrong uh, foot. So some of us did that and you're the ones who did time. I just don't do it. But um, anyway, uh, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be at the meeting, but something kept me there. And I didn't realize it for months afterwards. And that was that, um, <clears throat> that, I felt safe at that meeting. And the reason I felt safe was that 
Alcoholics Anonymous was happening in the room. There were no issues going on from the podium. I had a drinking problem, I thought, not realizing that I had a living problem that led me to drink for relief. And I heard a speaker talk about alcohol giving him relief. And that's what makes me an alcoholic, I believe, is that alcohol utterly relieves me of all of the stuff that's going on in my life that causes me restlessness, irritability, discontentedness, resentment, fear, all that stuff. Two shots of Jack Daniels, bless you, relieve me of that. And that doesn't work that way for most of the human race. And I heard this guy say that. Now, if somebody had gotten up there and prattled on about mommy and daddy issues or Uncle Fester touched my pee-pee when I was three and that kind of stuff, I would never have heard it because I would have sat there listening to all the differences. But what I heard was someone talk about alcohol and it relieved them, you know? And I understood that. I didn't relate because I didn't want to identify. I mean, my God, if you start identifying, it might mean you've got it. And I didn't have alcoholism. Uh, I went to my meeting there the next week, though, because Debbie was taking her 30-day chip. Nothing could have pleased me more. Um, I thought, oh, God, you know, they give you chips. I don't know if they do that here, but in Los Angeles, you get little chips uh, that, tell, that tell you how many days. Do you do that here? I heard a play about a place in Burlington, Iowa. There's a guy at a bar in Burlington, Iowa will give you a drink if you bring in an AA chip, and he nails them on the wall behind the bar. That's a resentment. <laughs> oh. But... Uh, they give out these chips there and Debbie was going to get her 30-day chip and everybody was all a Twitter. All the people from the detox she went through. She went through a detox with 30 people that night. 30 of them out of this detox to see Debbie get her chip. Then they all grabbed me and went for coffee after the meeting. You know, and I had to sit there and listen to them yammer on. You know, they all got about 30 days. They're all talk- I've got about a week and they're all talking in code. You know. Have you done two and three? Yeah, I'm doing two and three. I'm going to do four next week. And four and five and three. I can't wait to get to ten. It's this numerical code going on at the table. And I, I could not wait to get the hell out of there. And yet when I got home, I felt better for some reason. I just felt better. And I didn't drink for the next week. I wasn't going to any meetings, but I, I didn't drink for a whole week. And I went back the next Sunday. The next Sunday I went back for a different reason, though. And that was because that on the Tuesday after she got her 30-day chip, Debbie went out and got drunk again. And it took her eight and a half years to get back to eight, and eight and a half hard years. And I went back because I was afraid. You know, I didn't go back for any altruistic reasons. I just went back because I was afraid that I would drink again. And um, people were again kind and helpful and uh, talked to me about getting committed to AA. And comm- but I didn't want. I'm not a joiner, and I can't. I don't want to do that. You know, I'll, I read the. I can see the steps. See, there they are. I can do them. I'm sitting there doing them every meeting I go to. Yeah, okay. I'm admitting my power. Oh, yeah, no shit. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. I can't believe the power. All right, so made a decision. Okay, take it away, Lord. Um, I made a searching and made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Well, I've made moral inventories. I've oftentimes kept myself out of the mix, but. You know, you just go down, the, I'd go down the list sitting there at the meeting going, I've done that, doing that, I'm doing that, yeah, I'm doing that now, I'm pretty much doing that, I've done that before, yeah, okay, no problem, I've been to therapy, and people said, you've got to get committed to AA and do the steps. I didn't get it. Uh, finally, somebody said, I got a, a, someone spoke there named Keith C., and Keith was really enthusiastic, he's big, and they made me go up and thank him after the meeting, which I did not want to do. I said, why do you have to go up and thank the speaker? And, he, and they said, uh, I mean, I had to get out of there. You know? and he came here to talk. And I said, well, what if you don't like him? He said, well, all the more reason to go up and thank him. You know, just get the moral high ground if you can. And uh, so I went up to thank him. These people got, there were about three people there who collared me and kind of pushed me up to thank him. I said, thank you for talking. And, and he said, you knew. And I said, yeah, I am, I'm new, I guess. And, uh, and uh, he said, you know, alcoholic. I said, yeah, I didn't believe it, but I, okay, I'll do it to humor this guy. What am I going to say? No, and have him stand there for another half hour trying to tell me I am. Uh, you know, I'm not stupid. Uh, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, all right. Yeah, well, I did it, okay. I stole tires off moving cars. Whatever you want to say, I am. I did. And um, he said, how many meetings are you going to? And I said, I go to, a, I, I, I go to meetings. And he said, how many meetings are you going to? And I said, I go to this meeting. And he said, this is it. I said, yeah. And he said, you should be going to four or five meetings. I said, well, I do. Every Sunday. On a five-Sunday month, I'm at five meetings. And he said, no. (laughs) I mean, every week. You should go to five meetings a week. And I thought, you have got to be out of your ever-loving mind. Five meetings a week. That's obsessed. 
He said, how many nights a week did you drink? I said, well, every night, basically. Pretty much I drank every night. And uh, he said, here, he gave, me the, he gave me the address of the Pacific Group. He said, I'm going to look for you Wednesday night. Be there. How come you don't go to more meetings? I said, well, it's such a long drive. I come back from Orange County. By the time I get home, and I, I get off work at 4. I go to the bar and sit there and drink Sprite while everybody else is going there. Uh, just, that's a, there's an exercise in tedium. You, know, you, just, you watch them going up, you know. Um, I got to tell you, if you're new, don't play that game. I, I've, I've been sober the way Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me to be sober, and that is I don't drink, I don't drugs, I don't uh, chippy around with my alcoholism, I don't drink near beer because I don't want to identify as being near sober. You know? <laughs> near beer is like a recovering junkie by an empty syringe and just picking at his arm. You know? uh, <laughs> um, You, you can call yourself sober, but I think you're missing the point. You know, um, I go to the bars. And I, do, I, would, I go there and I watch everybody else get there. And you know how people get when, when you're not drinking and they are and they're just starting to get loose and warm and you can see them, the conversation's flowing and you're sitting there getting more and more. You're just kind of vibrating and you, know, you just want to be there. You just want to go with them. And they start, you know, come back. And uh, I met this guy at an AA meeting. Uh, on a Friday night, I started going to Pacific Group meetings, and I, I, start, I didn't get a sponsor immediately. I went to a men's stag meeting on Friday night, and this guy came up to me, and he said, um, he said, you're new, right, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he looked, he was an older guy, distinguished guy. I think Nancy probably knew him. His name was Bob. He ran for the uh, California Council on Education or something a couple of times. He was always active in some kind of politics, but um, Bob was, and he always lost, too, so I'm not breaking anybody's anonymity. And uh, Bob came up to me and said, uh, what do you do when you get off work? And I said, I go to the bars and I sit there, but I get really frustrated because everybody else seems to be having a good time. And I just, I just don't feel, I feel different when I sit there. And he said, well, here's what I do when I go to a bar. I, um, I get a glass of whiskey and I get a glass of ginger ale. And I smell the whiskey and then I drink the ginger ale. I sniff the whiskey, sniff and drink and sniff and drink and I'm fine. And I stood there and thought, I've been coming to these days now. Finally, somebody has some real suggestions about what to do. I keep hearing, turn it over, surrender, work the program, keep coming back. This guy's giving me a tangible plan. You buy a glass of whiskey, you sniff it, and you drink ginger ale, you know? Sniff and sip, and sniff and sip. And, uh... This guy named Max P. grabbed me by the collar. He heard this guy talking to him, and he pulled me over and said, don't listen to him. He's wrong. You get off work, you call me. We'll go to the mall and hang out down there until the meeting starts. We'll get something to eat and hang out together. I'll bring you over to the meeting, and we'll, we'll go to the meeting. How's that? I thought, well, his sounded so much... Look, can I try it once? You know, uh, but I did. I got Max's phone number, and I called him, and, and he, he brought me to a meeting, and he taught me how to start calling people that I didn't know. To, to go to meetings and to, to get into the fellowship. And he was right, because I, apparently uh, one day Bob got his rhythm off and uh, <laughs> started uh, sitting there sniffing a glass of ginger ale. Uh, I saw him down at, my sponsor and I were having dinner down at Venice Beach when I was about a year and a half sober, and we were sitting on this patio looking out at the beach on the boardwalk, and Bob came up to our table panhandling. And I, I believe he died, I don't know what, but he was panhandling. You know, and yet he seems so logical. And Alcoholics Anonymous, I found, is not a program about um, theory and suggestion. And if I were you, I would. It's a program. It's a fellowship that, in which we come together and we listen to each other's solutions and what our problems are in life. I heard an Al-Anon woman say this. A woman named Ellen F. who lives in San Fernando Valley, who said, um, she said, I take my problems to my sponsor. I take my I don't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to talk about theory or generalities or all that stuff. We come here to talk about what happened to us and how to practice, how to practice the principles, not, not sit around and consider practicing them, not to be the, you know, the guru of the Alano Club. It's to be somebody who's just in life. And I didn't understand that because I got a sponsor finally. His name's Bill McDonald. And um, I called Bill right before I came, I got here because I was kind of at loose ends, as you can probably tell. And um, 
I said, what, give me something, just give me something. You know, Bill's sober 23 years. He said, you're in St. Louis? And I said, yeah. And he said, tell him Harry Truman's really from Ohio. <laughs> um, that sounds like Bill. That's, it's Bill. It's pure Bill. And uh, he gets me laughing, though. You know, I got this guy as a sponsor. He, wasn't, he didn't make me laugh the first night I got him for a sponsor. Um, he sat me down and said, are you, are you willing to do anything to stay sober? And he said, good. Shave off that silly mustache and get a haircut, and I'll see you Friday at the men's stag. I thought, ding, ding, time out. Where does it say in the big book? Now, I was bluffing because I hadn't read the big book, but I knew there was... Uh, I'd, I'd glanced at enough of it to know there was no chapter to the barber. And um, I said, where does it say in the big book? And he said, it doesn't say anything in the big book about it. And I said, well, where is it in AA that you have to... And he said, it doesn't say anything about it in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, well, then why do I have to... And he said, hold on a second. You just said 30 seconds ago that you were willing to do anything to stay sober, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, I just asked you to shave your mustache off and cut your hair, right? And he said, yeah. And he said, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to shave, just because I said for you to do it, what makes me think you're going to do the steps when I start telling you to do them? I want to see whether you're a winner or a loser. I don't work with losers, you know? And, uh, and, it's got, and it really doesn't have anything to do with shaving. It has everything to do with taking action to show that you've surrendered because surrender is such a net... You know, you can come to AA meetings and the topic is surrender and it sounds like a Heaven's Gate meeting. You know, you're in there... Everybody just, they're dissecting their own spirits and surrender is nothing more than stepping outside of that circle of acceptability that I've got around my feet. You know, when I came into AA, I had a circle drawn around my feet it was touching my toes and my heels, and everything within the circle was acceptable to Charlie, and everything outside the circle was unacceptable. And my sponsor said, I want you to step outside of the circle just for a little bit today, just long enough to set up the chairs at the meeting. I want you to step outside of yourself just long enough, step outside of the circle just long enough to stay after and clean up. Step outside of yourself just long enough to go up and thank somebody for participating or say happy birthday to somebody who Step outside just long enough to find somebody who looks more nervous than you do at the meeting and go up and get them a cup of coffee and make them feel welcome. Do the things that people do around here. Just, and then you can go back into your circle. One. And he never told me I had to do it forever. And so I started taking these tangible actions of exactly what he told me to do. I'd get to my meetings on time. I'd get to, their, I'd get to the meetings an hour early. I'd ask for phone numbers. I'd thank the speakers. I would make coffee. I would bring literature. I'd schlep literature and do that crap. I'd clean up stuff after the meeting. It, it didn't matter if it was... My sponsor gave me... A, his overall direction was that your operative word in sobriety is yes. That's the word I want to hear coming out of your mouth when anybody asks you to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's yes. And then ask them what the circumstances are. If you've got a previous commitment, then you don't have to do it. But if you don't, you need to do what people ask you to do. And that's surrender. Surrender is doing something that I don't necessarily want to do for the benefit of something greater than I am. I don't know what it is. But I'll tell you something. I benefited from... When I walked into that first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I came to in 1981... I walked in that room and people were sitting just as they are right now paying attention to the message that's going on at the podium and they're not paying attention necessarily to me because I'm not the message. I'm not the message. The message is way beyond any individual in Alcoholics Anonymous. The message is in the rooms. The message is in the conversation. The message is, in, is, is, what, is the putty that God fills in around here between us. It's not each of us. It's what, and people were in that room and they were paying attention to the message at the podium they were quiet. They weren't distracting people next to them because they, they weren't distracting newcomers. You know, if I if I've been distracted, and I'm easily distracted, you know, a moth will have me fascinated for hours. You know, but I um, that's why I never took acid. I knew I'd never come back. Uh, <laughs> but I um, if I'd been distracted at all in my early meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have left. You know, I needed to hear what was going on here. And I had to learn to shut up in meetings and just pay attention, you know. I really, I really appreciated what, people, what, what your format was tonight when you asked me. It's too distracting for what, from what, you know. And uh, I started doing what he said, not believing what he said. In two years, I was, you know, I'd done all the steps um, and I've done them, you know, it's not like you do them once and it's not like you do them, after you've done them once, one through 12, there's certainly no regularity to the way you do them. Uh, they just, just as life occurs, 
the steps are my bat. I just swing at whatever comes across the plate, you know, with whatever I think I can I can hit it with, you know. Um, and I start I I've, I've always guided my life by my fear. And my sponsor told me to go back to school. So I went back to grad school. And the person who told me how to get into grad school, who started me on the right path, was the gardener. And I went up to Loyola Marymount, and the gardener was there, and I said, how do I find out how to enroll in grad school? I should know how to enroll in grad school. I was 33 years old at the time. I should know how to enroll, but I didn't know. And I learned in AA to walk up to somebody and just ask. Just play dumb. Just be dumb. If you don't know, ask somebody. They're not going to go, boy, are you stupid? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> you find out how God works through other people. Stop and ask somebody for direction sometimes. You know, people are really, ex- they're almost obsessed with making sure you get where you're going at a certain point because I think people enjoy that sense of helping somebody else. And this guy showed me where to go, what building to go to. And then other people in the, in the, ro- the wrong rooms that I was going to directed me to where I should go. And I wound up getting into grad school. And I wound up, um, after a semester there majoring in English, I wound up... Um, uh, being offered to teach at the college where I was working on the receiving dock. I was at a college bookstore, and they, they were short one teacher. Now, I don't believe God, I don't believe God made them short one teacher and made me back in grad school and put us together like little chess pieces, you know. I just believe that there would have been short one teacher whether I was in grad school or not. It's just that they needed somebody, and because I had done what people said and forgot my fear or tried to put it to one side and went ahead and did it, then when an opportunity arose, I was able to take some action on it. And I applied for the job, and they gave it to me. And I started teaching college in the mornings. In the afternoons, I went back and unloaded trucks. Frequently, my students would walk down the alley behind the bookstore, and I'd be in the dumpster jumping up and down on the boxes <laughs> in an apron. And they'd say, is, is that Mr. Carney in the trash dumpster? And I'd, I'd wave to him. And... Uh, <laughs> You got to have an edge on students, you know. You really, um, it, it, it really throws them off when they see you in the dumpster in the afternoon. Uh, they they treat you with a whole different attitude the next day. They don't say anything about it, but you know, you look at them like, I know that you saw me in the dumpster. <laughs> then a year later, I guess the pain of teaching college wasn't enough, and I started teaching high school, and. Uh, I was so nervous about that job, I, I did not want to do that either. And I, I got a job in a Catholic school. I, who used to rip off those little porno newsstands on the street that you can, I'd kick them open and take one of those date magazines out and uh, uh, dial a date. And um, sleep tight, folks, uh, if you have children in school. But anyway, um, I, I started teaching high school. And uh, I was terrified. My sponsor came over the night before I was going to go teach, and he came into my apartment, and, and he lived about two doors, about a two doors behind me and he said uh, I know that I know you're really scared to go into that, that classroom tomorrow uh, but I want you to remember that you're not going in there alone that when you walk in there you've got God with you and God is what being watched you're being watched over not by him necessarily by himself but every person in Alcoholics Anonymous in the, in the group is there with you and they're going to be with you all the time, whether you, whether you make it or don't make it. And you go up there and you just pretend that the hand of God is against the small of your back. And you've got it. And you're going to do fine. Because you may go in there tomorrow and they may just crucify you. In L.A., that's, that's a possibility, too. Um, they may, you may find out that you should not be a teacher and that you made a big mistake and you should never do that. You have that choice, or you can sit in the back room of the bookstore and price pencils till you're 70 years old and wonder whether you could have cut it. What do you want to do? And so I went in the next day and I started teaching. And um, I did that for six years. And I'll tell you, it was one of the best experiences of my life because it taught me, if you want to, if you want to work the steps, really work them. I mean, spot me, i got to work them uh, kind of stuff. Be a high school teacher. Because you are forced against the wall to practice every principle you've learned at every meeting you have ever been to, ever. They just come at you. They don't have anything in common either. Different races, creeds, colors, religious backgrounds, sexual orientation, socioeconomics, all different except they're united in their contempt for me. And, uh, <laughs> and you have to really know how to, you have to be able to treat them. I've, I have two nuns in my group. Nancy sponsors one of them, and uh, they, uh, one of them, Sister Mary, I went up to her and said, what do I do? Um, 
my, I, I got to teach this class, these classes and these kids, and I, I don't know quite how to get a handle on them. And she said, well, treat them like newcomers. Just treat them like little newcomers. Show them that you respect them. Show them that you have something that they want. Love them. Give them the best shot you got. Let them know that you've got something that's really going to be valuable for them. But don't let them stop you from doing what you have to do. So I wanted to try to treat them like newcomers. You know, you taught me that. What happened? I, I wound up staying for six years. It was hard. It was a hard six years. Believe me, it's heartbreaking a lot of times. I've had my kids killed by gang fights. I've had uh, kids arrested on campus for shooting at people. I've seen kids I cared about have terrible things go on in their lives. And, um, and yet Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to be just there and be supportive of them and nothing more. Not try to run their lives, not try to change them. Just try to be a support for them and show them something real. And... Um, I, I, got the, I got more out of it than anybody did. I got more out of those classes than anybody did. And um, two year, about, I'm sorry, five years ago, I started writing. Uh, I got an opportunity again to write professionally. And I started doing that and started writing children. First, I started writing animated cartoons. And then I started writing children's books. And I have found a niche there, you know, and doing that. And my life is changing. And I only tell you that not to trumpet my, my wonderful success story, but it's more to tell you that if you are afraid right now and unsure of what's happening to you and unsure of how this program works in your life, you don't have to know how it works in your life. You just have to do it. No one at the meeting that I went to the first night that I came to AA knew what the result of their putting the chairs in order, making coffee, bringing literature, bringing cookies, bringing cake, dressing up for the meeting on a nice sunny Sunday night in Southern California during the summer. They had better things to do, but they came there and did that not knowing why they were doing it, really. They knew they were doing it for their own sobriety, but not really knowing if anyone would benefit from it, but they don't care. Just like the people here set all this up, not knowing if anybody's even going to show up, but people show up and, and, and take the benefit of the efforts of other people and then bring their own efforts into staying sober and their own experience, strength, and hope, and something happens here. You know, we're not just a 12-step program or a fellowship. We, have, we can't forget that. You know, we're not an isolated group of people that sit and work 12 steps and study the big book and try to channel Bill, you know. Uh, <laughs> we are a bunch of crazy people, dangerous when we ingest alcohol, who stay here a day at a time and try to find out how, how to succeed in life on life's principles. I've watched miracles happen in a, and I hate that term. I hate using that term. But I watch people, Karen's been a friend for a long time, and... and uh, She's changed. <laughs> Thank you, God. No, I, and I watch, I watch people come into to AA, and I, I, Kimberly and John are friends from Los Angeles, and, and I've, I've seen, I know several people in this room uh, from my last trip uh, to St. Louis, and, and uh, you know, they mean a lot to me, but I watch people change. That keeps me coming back. Just that. If that's all I get. I sponsor guys. That keeps you coming back, just to be sure they're there. You know? Um, I'm sponsoring a guy now. He's an ex-junkie and an alcoholic. And uh, about three weeks ago, he was passing a kidney stone. They had to take some blood out of him, and they couldn't find a vein to take it out. They had to tip him upside down. On a, they strapped him to a table, tipped him upside down, and pulled it out of his neck. You know? And this guy came to the meeting the next night. You know? He passed the kidney stone last week. I took him to a meeting that night, and he was talking about how, how painful it was. And it's indeed a painful process, I'm sure. And then we heard a woman speak at the meeting who just had her kidney transplant, I mean, her liver transplanted. And... Uh, Finally, leaned over and said, that kind of makes your chicken shit little kidney stone sound silly, doesn't it? <laughs> but um, <laughs> you learn that stuff from Clancy, I'll tell you. Um, last night, I, I was at a surprise party for a friend of mine uh, in AA, 20 years sober, and uh, Paul C. And, and Paul uh, was, was absolutely shocked. My sponsor threw the party for him, and Clancy's Paul's sponsor, and Clancy was there, and about 40 people showed up, and Everybody sang happy birthday, and we had a little party in this guy's living room. And, um, and then after it was over, we were all talking about AA and telling stories like we tend to do and swapping, you know, how, who's got the biggest tale to tell. And uh, as we were leaving, we were all standing out in the front yard watching the hail bop comet, you know. And Clancy was making his usual wisecracks, and uh, everybody was out there having a good laugh and a good time. And as I was driving away with my girlfriend, I thought, I said, you know, this is one of those nights that you just remember. This is just, there's a lot of goodness here that you remember remember this night and remember the goodness here because this is what keeps me going when I can't find it anymore you know some days you just start running on empty and you can't find it anymore and I'll tell you a story and I'll sit down because I know you're waiting for that um, 
when I was about 11 years old, I'd had a bicycle since I was about eight, but I didn't learn to ride it until I was 11 because I, I like to get, I like to ease into it. And uh, <laughs> I didn't. I, it had it had training wheels on it. It had streamers, you know. And uh, my dad had bought it for me, and and my dad loved me, and I didn't realize that till after long after I was sober, long after he had died, and had I got to go back and make amends to him and realize the goodness that was in that man who I had judged so mercilessly. And the same thing with my mom, just judged her so mercilessly about the way she acted around me and the way we never got to relate to each other. And it was her fault, of course. Uh, now we do fine, as long as we don't mention anything that's happened since the Taft administration. But um, <laughs> anyway, this, uh, this bike was sitting in the garage, and, and this guy named Irv, who was our neighbor, came over, and Irv said, I saw the bike out in your garage. And now Irv was sort of a one of the fix-it guys in the neighborhood. He could fix bicycles and lawnmowers and that kind of stuff. And he said, uh, you want to learn how to ride it? And I said, no. Uh, not unless I can just ride it right away. I mean, you know me. I, I, want to learn to, I want to play the piano, too. I just don't want to learn how to play the piano. Yeah, I think you understand that. And um, he said, come on, let's go out and learn how to ride it. So he goes out and takes the, the training wheels off, thank God, pulls the streamers off, says, get on the bike, you pedal and steer, I'll hang on to this rack back here, and I will not let you fall. How's that? Okay, so I get on the bike. I'm terrified. I get on the bike. I start pedaling and steering. Irv's walking along. Don't worry, I'm walking. I'm walking. Come on. Yeah, I got you. You're not going to fall. And we're going along the, the street. We go about two blocks and turn around and come back again. And he said, there, that wasn't so bad, was it? And I said, no, that's not bad. And I went inside, you know, and toweled off. And uh, uh, <laughs> it, oh, I, it was a trauma. I mean, I had to lay down for an hour. And uh, then the next day, I'm home after school. And I hear... You know, and it's Irv again. He said, say, you want to go out on the bike again? I thought, what, what are you, crazy? I didn't learn how to ride it yesterday. What makes you think it's going to happen today? Yeah. Come on, let's go do it. So I get out on the bike, and he says, you know, you get on the bike, you pedal and steer, I'll hang on to the back, I will not let you fall. How's that? Okay, and I get out there and get on the bike, and I'm pedaling and steering, and Irv's right you know, next to me. He's walking along, you're doing fine, come on, I got you, you're not going to fall. We go about eight blocks then and come back, and I'm really, whew, big afternoon. And uh, well, he keeps coming back day after day and taking me out on the bike. About the fourth day, we get out there, and I don't know about you, but when I've done something for about three days, it's, I get kind of, you know, okay, you know the drill, Irv. I get on the bike, you ped, I'll pedal and steer, yeah, I know, I know, you'll hang on to the back, let's go. So I get out there, and Irv's walking along, and I'm pedaling and steering, you know, and I'm, I start going a little faster, just to see what it's like. And I look over, and Irv's trotting alongside of the bike, and I start going a little bit faster, and Irv's trotting a little faster now and I go a little bit faster and he's in a little bit of a jog and then I go a little bit faster and I'm thinking, damn, Irv, you know, I look over and he's gone. Uh, I got a glance over my shoulder really quick and he's about two blocks behind. And it, well, it terrified me and it irritated me because he hadn't taught me to turn yet. So I'm, uh, I had to go about 90 blocks around the neighborhood. It's like turning a, it's like turning a submarine around, you know, I'm, but I'm pedaling on this bike and I couldn't stop. You know, you said, now I'm going. He didn't ta teach me how to turn or stop. So I'm just riding. I rode that bike all, I rode it about a hundred blocks around my neighborhood, just riding and riding because I didn't know how to get off the bike. You know, I, I just kept riding. I rode it all the way home. I got right up on my front lawn and tipped it over to stop on the, on the ground. And I've been riding that bike ever since. I mean, not the same bike, but I, I have known how to ride a bike ever since then. And the weird thing about it is that I didn't understand any of the principles that are absolutely necessary to ride a bicycle. In order to ride a bicycle, there are certain principles, like anything in life, that are necessary. There has to be, you have to, I mean, I didn't understand anything about inertia or momentum or physics. I didn't understand anything about, about balance or pulleys and levers or inner ear function in staying in balance on a bicycle. I didn't understand anything about those principles. And if any of those things are absent, you can't ride a bicycle. If any one of them is absent, you cannot ride a bike. It's physically impossible to do it. And I didn't know any of them, and I rode a bike, because all I knew was that if I pedal and steer, Herb will hang on to the back and he won't let me fall. And he held to it. And for those of you who are new here or having some trouble in AA, you probably think, well, that's a, that's a wonderful story. Go away. Um, <laughs> Uh, what is what is this HR puffin stuff? Uh, it's, what it means is that you don't have to understand a damn thing about what's going on around here. You don't have to study the big book. You just have to read it. You don't have to work the steps. You just have to do them. You don't have to place 
great expectations on what's going to happen. You just need to get on the bike and pedal and steer. And we will hang on to the back and we'll walk with you. And we won't let you fall. We promise we will not let you fall as long as you pedal and steer. One day, we're going to see that you're doing fine. And it's going to be our call. And we're just going to let go of the back. And you're going to be riding by yourself. We don't want anything for it. We don't want your money. We don't want your firstborn child. We don't want anything from you. All we want is this. And that is once you have learned how to pedal and steer and do the deal here, we want you to come back the next night and look for the sorriest looking person in the room and go up to them and say, come here a second, hop on the bike. You pedal and steer, I'm going to hang on to the back and I'm not going to let you fall. And I want to thank all of you, especially my friends here tonight, and thanks for being with me.